This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. On a crisp evening in December of 1894, three women walked quickly down a cobblestone street in Medicine Lodge, Kansas. The three women, all in their 40s, were kitted out in dark, austere garb. The only pop of brightness on their clothes were the white ribbons affixed to their lapels. All three came to a stop outside a drugstore. Then one of the women stepped away from the pack, squared her shoulders, and marched inside. The man behind the counter looked up to meet her unflinching gaze. She said, Mr. Day, the ladies of the WCTU want to see what you have in here. Before he could respond, the middle-aged woman in the sensible shoes darted behind his counter, gripped a 10-gallon barrel of medicinal whiskey, and shoved it onto its side. Then she rolled it out the door. She cried out to her compatriots, Women, this is whiskey. Then she held out her hand. One of her ladies-in-arms armed her with a sledgehammer. As the ashen-faced store owner watched, the woman raised the sledgehammer high and brought it down hard on the barrel of booze. The store owner shouted, incredulous, as liquor spilled down the streets. Ignoring him, the woman struck a match. Then, leaning in close, she set the whiskey ablaze and watched it burn. Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture a woman? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every Wednesday, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, and you're listening to Female Criminals, a ParCast original. You can find episodes of Female Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Female Criminals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Female Criminals in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. 
let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. This week, we're discussing Carrie Nation, a radical member of the temperance movement who fought against the proliferation of alcohol before the Prohibition era. We'll explore Carrie's childhood, her marriages, and the beginning of the war she waged against liquor. Next week, we'll learn more about Carrie's rampages, smashing up saloons and bars across America. We'll also detail the trials and incarcerations that followed these attacks. Finally, we'll discuss the enduring legacy of Carrie's vigilantism. Carrie Amelia Moore was born on November 25, 1846, on a farm in Garrett County, Kentucky. Carrie's mother, Mary, was a homemaker, while her father, George, was a farmer and slave owner. As a result, Carrie's childhood was one of relative leisure. As a child, she adored her father, wanting to emulate him in everything. However, he was often harsh with her, once slapping Carrie hard after she made a joke that he considered unseemly. As for her mother, Carrie found her distant and cold. According to a biography written by Fran Grace, Carrie's mother, Mary, epitomized the Southern ornamental enslaver's wife. Her life unfolded according to a rhythm of frequent pregnancy and childbirth, followed by long periods of emotional and physical hibernation from her husband and children. Ultimately, Mary's standoffish nature and George's harshness led Carrie to turn to her family's enslaved workers for love and comfort. According to Carrie's autobiography, there were several Negro cabins on her father's property. Carrie never questioned her family's right to own slaves and believed from childhood that they were beneath her. But this didn't diminish the affection she felt for them and craved from them. For this reason, without her parents' knowledge, Carrie would sometimes attend the slaves' evening sermons. These worship sessions took place in secret. Carrie sat and watched, enthralled, as the slaves sang, shouted, and danced. The sermons were worlds away from the staid, lifeless affairs she had to attend with her parents. Carrie's parents were Campbellites, adhering to a strict sect of Christianity that disallowed women preachers, emotional testimony, and even musical instruments. Outside of church, Carrie was a pigtailed tomboy. According to Fran Grace's book, a childhood friend described her as strong-willed and absolutely afraid of nothing. She was a leader of both boys and girls who delighted in assuming the role of conqueror. When she wasn't playing with her peers, she was tagging along with her father on his errands for the farm. However, the minute Carrie hit puberty, her father stopped indulging her boisterous ways. In 1856, George presented 10-year-old Carrie with a spinning wheel. The wheel acted as a message to Carrie that it was time for her to set childhood aside. She had to exchange her father's coattails for her mother's apron strings. George's regressive beliefs were entirely based on tradition. In the mid-1800s, the feminine ideal was a woman who was more decorative than functional. She would adorn her husband's home, provide him with children, and periodically retire to her room in beautiful illness. 
This was the mold that Carrie's mother, Mary, filled perfectly. And when Carrie hit puberty, it was the same role she was expected to fill. Carrie rose to the challenge, almost. After being gifted with the spinning wheel, Carrie fell ill with chlorosis, a form of anemia. Her sickness drained her of her energy and appetite, leaving her bedridden for years. Author Fran Grace hypothesized that Carrie's long illness might have been a means for her to assert control over her life. She wrote, Social conventions required her to give up the freedom she had enjoyed as a child. So by confining herself to her bed, she delayed adapting to the new expectations of her parents and society. If Fran's theory is accurate, and Carrie did exaggerate her illness for years, she might have had a form of factitious disorder. Before we continue with Carrie's psychology, please note that I'm not a licensed psychiatrist or psychologist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. According to sociologist Ida Quittingen, people with factitious disorder feign a serious illness because they want to be seen and they don't know how to ask for attention in the usual ways. The main gains that patients receive from assuming the sick role are sympathy, warmth, and control over their lives. If she was pretending to be sick, Carrie accomplished two important things. She was able to delay the onset of her adult role and get the attention from her parents that she'd never enjoyed as a child. Whatever the reason Carrie took to her bed, by the time she emerged a few years later, around age 13, she'd recommitted herself to her parents' path for her. When her father pressured her to be baptized in the Campbellite Church, Carrie conceded. Her baptism signaled her desire to become the sort of obedient, ornamental woman that her parents desired. And then in 1861, the American Civil War broke out, and 15-year-old Carrie's life was completely upended. Her family moved several times, eventually settling in Texas for a while. Author Fran Grace explained, the disorientation of all the movement took its toll, and 10 members of the family, both black and white, soon came down with typhoid fever. Adding to their troubles, many Texans regarded newcomers with distrust, suspecting them of being abolitionists. The unfriendly climate caused Carrie's family to flee once more. However, this move was markedly different Abraham Lincoln had issued the Emancipation Proclamation in 1863. So when Carrie's family moved from Texas to Missouri, they left the family's slaves behind. 17-year-old Carrie was devastated by this development. The absence of her family's slaves meant that she'd lost her main source of support. Even worse, Carrie's mother responded to their diminished circumstances by taking to bed. So, according to Fran Grace, in Missouri, Carrie was forced to take over the supervision of the younger children, the washing and the cooking. Her initial difficulties in carrying out these responsibilities made her aware of the curse of slavery, which, she argued, had made white women lazy and incompetent. Fortunately, Carrie was a fast learner. Soon, she was managing the household and children with confidence. However, despite her ability to rise to the challenge, Carrie was lonely. 
furthermore, her mother's delicate constitution made her scared that she might have to take care of her siblings and father forever. Then, in November of 1865, a young teacher named Charles Gloyd moved into town. Charles Gloyd was both a teacher and a wartime physician. After moving to Missouri, he set out for Carrie's father's farm, hoping to offer his teaching services in exchange for room and board. George accepted his offer. It wasn't long before Charles noticed Carrie. He must have felt an instant attraction because one day when the two were left alone, Charles grabbed Carrie and kissed her. In response, Carrie dramatically declared, I am ruined. However, on returning to her room and ruminating on it, she decided she was not so much ruined as she was totally and completely game. Carrie's enthusiasm for Charles wasn't born out of some irresistible attraction. Rather, she was seeking a means to escape a thankless future as her family's caretaker. With that incentive in mind, Carrie set about falling passionately in love with Charles as quickly as possible. The two started hiding secret letters for each other in an overlooked side table. These correspondences were filled with expansive declarations of undying affection and love. Though Carrie was thrilled by her new romance, George and Mary were horrified. Not only was Charles an impoverished teacher, but he also drank heavily. In light of that, they kicked Charles out of their house and forbade Carrie from seeing him. However, the two continued exchanging secret letters by post for two years. Finally, in November of 1867, despite the protestations of her family, 21-year-old Carrie married 27-year-old Charles. The groom was drunk during the wedding ceremony. It was a sign of things to come. The minute Carrie and Charles were married and established in their own home, problems began. First, despite Charles' heated proclamations of love in his letters, once he and Carrie were man and wife, he largely ignored her. She wrote in her autobiography that she spent her days hungry for his caresses and love. But unfortunately, Charles preferred to sit alone with a book or go to the Masonic Hall. It was also in the Masonic Hall that Carrie's second problem with Charles blossomed, namely the alcoholism that her parents had warned her about. Charles spent several nights with his fellow Masons at the hall, drinking himself into a stupor. He chose the clubhouse because he knew it was closed to women, meaning Carrie could never enter, no matter how much she might want to. And she did want to. On some nights, Carrie marched down to the hall to call out for Charles. She even occasionally resorted to banging on the door. Regardless, Charles rarely responded, leaving Carrie to return home alone. In her diaries, she described often sitting by her window, crying while waiting for Charles to come home. After six months of this, Carrie discovered that she was pregnant. Then she knew that something had to change. In May 1868, 22-year-old Carrie decided to leave 28-year-old Charles. On realizing she was serious, Charles begged her not to go. 
finally aware of the gravity of his problem, he told her that he would be dead within months if she left him. But Carrie couldn't stay, not with a baby on the way. She returned to her parents' house, and the minute she was back within their walls, they forbade her from writing to Charles. They even threatened to kick her out if she informed him of their child's birth. So when Carrie gave birth to Charlene Gloyd on September 28, 1868, Charles was none the wiser. A few months later, he died from alcoholism. This was the first loss Carrie suffered at the hands of alcohol, but it wouldn't be the last. Up next, Carrie adjusts to a lonely, fraught life as a 22-year-old widow. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. In 1869, after her estranged husband, Charles Gloyd, died of alcoholism, 23-year-old Carrie Gloyd left her parents' house. She was angry with them for not allowing her to correspond with Charles in the last months of his life. So almost as a declaration of allegiance, Carrie moved in with Charles' mother, Nancy Gloyd, in Holden, Missouri, bringing her baby, Charlene, with her. Charlene acted as a good distraction from Carrie's thoughts. In the aftermath of Charles' death, Carrie blamed herself. She believed that had she stayed with him, he might still be alive. Studies show that Carrie's feelings of guilt in the face of overwhelming grief are not outside of the ordinary. According to Heather Stang, author of Mindfulness and Grief, Grieving people often feel guilty as a means to make sense of an unpredictable world. Their minds want desperately to create order from chaos, so they tell themselves that if they had done something differently, they could have prevented the senseless loss. In actuality, Carrie's presence never prevented Charles from drinking before, so her feelings of guilt were misleading. It's unlikely that she could have prevented Charles' death even if she had stayed with him. However, even in the midst of her guilt and grief, Carrie knew it was important for her to find a way to support herself and Charlene. So in 1872, 26-year-old Carrie became a certified teacher. She procured a job at the local public school. Fortunately, she was able to rely on her mother-in-law, Nancy, to take care of Charlene during the workday. When Carrie wasn't teaching or relieving Nancy of her babysitting duties, she had to conduct herself as a mature, grieving woman. Even though she was only 26, it didn't even occur to her to date. But Carrie also found it impossible to relate to the older married women in town. For these reasons, she found her early years as a widow in Holden extremely isolating. Unfortunately, her sense of loneliness often boiled over into anger. Even though she knew that as a woman, she was expected to be accommodating, soft-spoken, and agreeable, 
Carrie was unable to live up to this ideal. Instead, she found herself constantly losing her temper. On one occasion, after hearing a noise at night, Carrie rushed outside to discover a drunk man trying to climb over her fence, and she was at a loss. Here she was, grieving her husband, supporting her family, and trying her best to confirm to the strict behavioral expectations of young widows. And there he was, some man, stinking drunk and shimmying over her fence without a care in the world. Carrie screamed at the man, yelling at him to get out. Her neighbors were horrified, seemingly more by the sight of her screaming than of the drunk attempting to break into her home. As odious as that situation was, the next time she lost her temper, the consequences were much worse. On February 21, 1874, 28-year-old Carrie got into an altercation with her school's superintendent, Mr. Sandberger. Though the exact details of their argument remain unclear, Carrie wrote in her diary that their dispute was public. Months later, when she applied to renew her teaching position, her request was denied. Though it wasn't explicitly stated, Carrie was certain that her fight with Sandberger was the cause. The loss of her job was devastating. Without her income from teaching, Carrie was forced to rely on the kindness of her few friends in Holden. She wrote in her diary that her perennial indebtedness concerned her. She worried that certain friends had stopped speaking to her to avoid more financial entreaties. But beyond bruising her pride, Carrie's lack of funds filled her with fear. She knew she had to get back on the romance market if she wanted any chance of providing for herself, her mother-in-law, and her young daughter. To that end, Carrie resolved to remarry. This time, she committed herself to becoming the perfect woman, one who was pious, domestic, and most importantly, one who never lost her temper. Carrie's efforts to suppress her feelings paid off in spades when she caught the attention of David Nation. According to Fran Grace, David Nation was a leading citizen in Holden, serving as a city officer, newspaper editor, and church leader. He was also among the most wealthy property owners in the area. Even more promising, David's young wife, Samantha, conveniently dropped dead in August of 1874. It's unclear where David and Carrie first met, but just three months after his wife's death, 47-year-old David began a correspondence with Carrie. His haste was due to the fact that he'd been left with five children to raise. With this situation in mind, David sought to present himself as an attractive suitor. He filled his letters to Carrie with detailed descriptions of his big, beautiful house, hinting that all it lacked was a woman's touch. In response, Carrie filled her letters with references to all her church-going, homemaking, and cakewalks. And to David's statement of his house lacking a woman's touch, Carrie coyly responded, I hope you can make your home all you think it may be soon. That was all the encouragement David needed. After only three weeks of correspondence, he asked Carrie to marry him. His proposal was the answer to all her prayers, save for one 
tiny little problem. As it turns out, people in Holden believed that David's wife, Samantha, was murdered. Rumors flew around town that his oldest daughter, Mariah Nation, was the culprit. They said she had poisoned her mother in a fit of pique. Mariah had since left her father's house to marry, but Carrie became very concerned about her younger sister, 18-year-old Josie, who still lived at home. If Josie shared Mariah's matricidal inclinations, what was to stop her from poisoning Carrie? Carrie wasn't even her real mother. The poison would practically pour itself. Carrie thought bringing up David's poisoning progeny might be indelicate. So instead, she wrote to him that she feared that she and Josie might not get along. David was well aware of the rumors, and he appreciated Carrie's subterfuge, so he blithely promised to place Josie with relatives in Indiana. With that obstacle cleared, 28-year-old Carrie married 47-year-old David Nation in Holden, Missouri, on December 27, 1874. The wedding was considered a great success, as nobody was poisoned. The first two years of Carrie's life as Mrs. David Nation were splendid. David lived up to his promise, providing Carrie with an affluent life in a beautiful home. Furthermore, whenever he was away on business, he showered her with affection, often sending letters expressing his warm and tender love. For her part, Carrie played the role of a Victorian-era domestic goddess to perfection. She took care of Charlene, her former mother-in-law, Nancy Gloyd, and all of David's four young children. For those two years, Carrie was perfectly happy. Then David's business enterprises began to falter, and Carrie's period of domestic bliss came to a screeching halt. By 1877, a number of David's business associates had sued him. The exact details of their qualms is unclear, but the gravity of the lawsuits was such that David decided to leave Missouri for the sunny fields of Texas. There, he planned to farm cotton, despite knowing next to nothing about farming or cotton. Even though her husband's plans strained credulity, Carrie had no choice but to dutifully follow. So in January 1877, Carrie, David, their children, and Carrie's former mother-in-law set out for Brazoria County, Texas. According to Fran Grace, the nation's farming venture was a complete failure. First, they hadn't saved enough money to put towards their farm, so they fell into debt almost immediately. Second, they were besieged with bad luck of a near-biblical nature. A few months after arriving in Texas, their horses died, then they were attacked by swarms of bees, and their favorite cow was struck by lightning. By 1878, the nations were miserable and drowning in debt. This shared hardship didn't bring David and Carrie closer together. On the contrary, David decided to go to a nearby town, Columbia, to pick up whatever newspaper or legal work he could find. And though he remained married to Carrie, he maintained a residence in town, leaving her to run the farm by herself. 
Making David's desertion worse, Mother Gloyd also fled the farm, moving to Columbia for her health. Then David's oldest son, Oscar, overburdened by the physical requirements of the farm, left too. This series of departures left Carrie alone with her daughter, Charlene, and her stepdaughter, Lola, both of whom were too young to contribute in any meaningful way. In the face of her family's abandonment, Carrie had to adapt. According to Fran Grace, Carrie undertook a number of responsibilities all at once. Grace wrote that, in addition to canning vegetables, curing meat, washing, cooking, farming, and schooling Lola and Charlene, Carrie ventured to make extra income by writing articles for a magazine and selling butter and vegetables at a stand in town. Yet despite all her hard work, come harvest time, Carrie found it impossible to crop 1,700 acres of cotton by herself. She was frustrated. Even after all of the work she poured into the farm, it had come to nothing. And she knew that she had to find a different way to support her family. In 1879, after running the farm by herself for two years, Carrie went to visit Mother Gloyd in Columbia. While there, she dropped by the Columbia Hotel. Though the establishment was run down, Carrie sensed an opportunity. She told the proprietors that she would like to lease the property, even though it would exhaust her meager funds. After deliberating, the owners agreed to lease the hotel to her. Carrie was relieved. With only her two daughters for company, she'd been lonely on the farm. The move to town would allow her to reunite with her husband and Mother Gloyd. The first few months of running the Columbia Hotel were punishing. Though she had Mother Gloyd, Lola, and Charlene to help, Fran Grace explained that Carrie did all the cleaning, laundering, and cooking for her family and the hotel's guests. However, despite these humble beginnings, Carrie was able to turn the hotel into a booming business. And by 1881, after two years in her ownership, the hotel became a central meeting place for locals and a respectable stopover for travelers. Unfortunately, just as Carrie had built Columbia into a lucrative business, David insisted they move again, this time to Richmond, Texas. He believed that the new locale would be more receptive to his various business enterprises. David's business plans for Richmond were vague, bordering on non-existent. And yet, even though Carrie was the family's main breadwinner, societal conventions required her to go wherever he dictated. So in the summer of 1881, the nations packed up once again and moved 80 miles north. However, soon the balance of power in their relationship would shift, and it would be Carrie calling the shots. Up next, Carrie Nation joins the unruly women of the temperance movement. Now, back to the story. In 1881, 35-year-old Carrie Nation moved to Richmond, Texas with her two daughters, former mother-in-law and her husband, David Nation. Carrie was agitated by the move, forced to abandon the successful hotel she'd established in Columbia. 
Nevertheless, she didn't feel that she had the right to deny her husband's wishes. Fortunately, once Carrie arrived in Richmond, she set about purchasing an even bigger establishment with her accumulated savings, which she called the National Hotel. Carrie had learned plenty from her first foray into hotel management, and the National Hotel was an even bigger success. While David continued to dabble in journalism, Carrie was able to support her family off the strength of her hotel earnings. Furthermore, she pulled in enough income that she was also able to hire a small staff. Her new employees took on much of the hotel's menial labor, giving Carrie the freedom to pursue other interests. One of these turned out to be attending church. Finding herself with free time on her hands for the first time in decades, 35-year-old Carrie frequented Methodist and Episcopalian services in town. In 1884, after three years of church-going, something miraculous happened. 38-year-old Carrie was sitting in service when she suddenly saw a golden halo appear around the minister's head. Then, as he read out passages from Isaiah chapter 62, Carrie felt a transaction between her soul and God that left her wrapped in ecstasy. After consulting with various friends, Carrie decided that she'd experienced a baptism by the Holy Ghost. This interpretation of her ecstatic feelings was significant. As a child, she'd been told by her parents that spirit baptisms, as described in the Bible, were no longer possible. But this moment felt just like one. Now that she was an effective businesswoman and a good Christian, God had found her worthy of spiritual visions. After her baptism by the Holy Spirit, Carrie felt called by God to practice benevolence work. According to Fran Grace's book, Carrie devoted herself to serving the poor and marginalized people around her, welcoming tramps, orphans, and whoever else came her way into her hotel for free. The Richmond papers covered her charitable works favorably. But David Nation was less enthused. He was irritated by his wife dedicating so much attention to people outside of her family. Still, Carrie continued her charitable works in spite of David's feelings. She began holding her own sermons in her hotel. As with her benevolence work, Carrie welcomed all classes, races, and religious creeds to her services. But again, just as Carrie was flourishing in her new life as both a religious leader and successful hotel proprietress, David Nation ran into a spot of trouble. In 1889, David Nation wrote an article about the retaliatory activities of two rival political groups. Afterwards, one of them beat him up. David returned home to the hotel, bloodied from the altercation. On seeing him, Carrie was distraught. Despite the life she'd worked so hard to build in Richmond, she knew that she would have to leave it all behind for her husband's safety. In February 1889, 43-year-old Carrie arrived in Holton, Kansas, with her husband, David. Her daughter, Charlene, and stepdaughter, Lola, had recently gotten married, so they remained in Texas. Mother Gloyd opted to remain there as well. 
Upon arriving in Holton, David procured work as a preacher at the town's Campbellite Christian Church, leaving Carrie to settle into a life as a preacher's wife. But the role no longer suited her. In fact, Carrie was so unaccustomed to being seen and not heard that she often interrupted David during his sermons, interjecting her own views and asides. On other occasions, she became so agitated by his preaching that she marched up to the pulpit, slammed David's Bible shut, and declared the service over. David didn't seem to object to his wife's behavior, but the Holton church officials were so rankled by it, they dismissed David from his post. Shortly after, the two quit Holton for Medicine Lodge, Kansas. Once in Medicine Lodge, 62-year-old David developed a severe bout of rheumatism. In an attempt to recover, he spent most of the spring months of 1890 soaking in the hot springs of Arkansas. Once again, this left 44-year-old Carrie to fend for herself. She threw herself into benevolence work, volunteering at several charities that served the poor. Her activities were much more favorably received in Medicine Lodge than in Holton, and in recognition of her altruism, the residents of the town soon began calling her Mother Nation. In addition to giving back to her community, Carrie learned from the people around her. Namely, it was in Medicine Lodge that she finally became aware of Kansas's burgeoning temperance movement. The temperance movement was an organized social crusade in the mid-19th century in which activists sought to outlaw the distribution and consumption of alcoholic beverages. In 1890, 44-year-old Carrie attended a lecture by famed temperance and suffrage leader Anna Howard Shaw. It's unclear exactly what was said during the lecture, but Carrie probably heard her rail against the societal ills brought about by easy access to alcohol. Shaw's message likely resonated with Carrie for a few reasons. For one, alcoholism had destroyed her first marriage. Secondly, all the hours Charles had spent drinking inside the Masonic Lodge gave Carrie a dislike for alcohol-serving establishments. Lastly, Carrie's work with orphans and the poor had allowed her to witness the havoc wrought by alcohol on society at large. Carrie had once blamed Charles' death on his sensitive spirit and her own desertion of him. Now, Carrie blamed his demise on the availability of alcohol, the people who served it to him, and the craven lawmakers who failed to prevent such a transaction from occurring. Just one year after attending Shaw's speech, Carrie organized a local chapter of the Women's Christian Temperance Union, or the WCTU, in Medicine Lodge, Kansas. Carrie recruited other like-minded mothers and wives from around town. Then she acquainted herself with Kansas alcohol laws. According to Carrie Nation, the Kansas Cyclone, by author Patricia Ashman, Carrie discovered that an 1881 constitutional amendment banned the sale of alcohol except for medical, scientific, or mechanical purposes. However, enforcement of the alcohol ban was lax, thus saloons were a booming business in Kansas. Carrie's initial response to the law-breaking saloons was measured. 
Along with the other women in the WCTU, she asked local authorities to shut down the liquor joints. Her request was completely ignored. So Carrie escalated her approach. She tied a white ribbon onto her lapel, a signifier of her membership in WCTU. Then Carrie went down to the saloon of a local man named Mort Strong. On entering the establishment, Carrie began singing a dour hymn. The drinking patrons showered her with vicious expletives. Their profane behavior played right into Carrie's hands. The next day, the town's mayor shut Mort Strong's saloon down for mistreatment of a lady. The episode gained Carrie a lot of acclaim amongst the women of Medicine Lodge, and her reputation caused Mrs. Elliot, a young married woman, to seek out her help. Mrs. Elliot showed up at Carrie Nation's house, overcome with tears. She told Carrie that her husband had gone on a six-week bender at Durst's bar. The episode resulted in him running her out of their home in a drunken rage. While it might seem overly simplistic for Mrs. Elliot to tie her experience of domestic violence to alcohol abuse, studies suggest there is a link between the two. According to the World Health Organization, alcohol use increases the occurrence and severity of domestic violence. This is because alcohol directly affects cognitive and physical function, reducing self-control and leaving individuals less capable of negotiating a non-violent resolution to conflicts within relationships. So while alcohol might not have been the sole cause behind Mrs. Elliot's altercation with her husband, research suggests it was likely a contributing factor. In response to Mrs. Elliot's tale of woe, Carrie was furious. While Charles had ignored and disappointed her, he had never been abusive. Carrie went to Durst's bar and took up an impassioned sermon right outside his doors. On taking in Carrie's words of fire and brimstone, Durst decided that maintaining a liquor joint was hardly worth burning in hell. He shuttered his saloon for good. With this victory, Carrie Nation was just getting started. In December of 1894, Carrie discovered that local pharmacists in town often padded their incomes by selling liquor as medicine. That was all 48-year-old Carrie needed to hear. Carrie got wind of a delivery of contraband goods to O.L. Day's pharmacy and decided to pay them a visit. Carrie contacted two other members of the WCTU, and together, all three went down to the drugstore on a crisp December evening. Carrie marched inside, rolled out a barrel of whiskey, smashed it open, and set its contents ablaze. In a later article covering the altercation, a reporter who was sympathetic to the temperance cause dubbed Carrie and her WCTU compatriots seraphic beings. The sentiment was almost prophetic, for in the coming years, Carrie Nation would act as an archangel of vengeance. She'd embark upon a liquor-spilling, hatchet-wielding, saloon-smashing extravaganza that would stun even herself. Thank you. 
Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back next week with part two of Carrie Nation's story. We'll follow Carrie as she ramps up her smashing, taking it across state lines. We'll also cover the extensive consequences of Carrie's vigilantism. For more information on Carrie Nation, amongst the many sources we used, we found the book Carrie A. Nation by Fran Grace extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Female Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Female Criminals, for free, from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Female Criminals on Spotify, just open the app and type Female Criminals in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Aaron Larson. This episode of Female Criminals was written by Abiageli Adimegu, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Mm-hmm.